mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey everyone, it's Caroline here. I actually have some really good news for you this week because uh, my other podcast, The School for Dumb Women, is back. Some of you may not have heard of this. We actually went on a pretty long hiatus for a while there, which was kind of the reason why I started doing Sentimental Garbage in the first place. But it's back now, and it's basically nothing like Sentimental Garbage. There's very little about books in there, and it's mostly me and my two friends, Hannah Barrell and the comedian Alex Haddo, talking bollocks for 45 minutes straight. We kind of tend to focus on those Wikipedia pages that you spend way too much time on. Um, I think this week we talked about the show Ground Force, which was a gardening show from the 90s that was made famous because of someone not wearing a bra. I'm not from England, I don't know what you people do. And uh, we also talk about movie phone numbers, like why everything starts with 555, which I found absolutely fascinating. There's also a long bit at the end where I just talk about my birthday for 10 minutes straight. So if that appeals to you at all, um, please head over to your podcatcher. Wait, you're on your podcatcher of choice, never mind. Uh, Right in School for Dumb Women and have a listen. Welcome to a special edition of Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the novels that are getting us through the coronavirus. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm an author and a chess prodigy going through a divorce. Joining me is writer <laughs> and best quality crab, Ella Risbridger. Hi. Hi. Uh, today we're talking about Amy Tan's 1989 best-selling debut, The Joy Luck Club, a book that I cannot believe is as influential as it is and is also a debut novel. How is this a debut novel? Actually, I have some thoughts about it being a debut novel because I, my favourite by her is The Kitchen God's Wife. And I'm reading that at the moment on your recommendation and it is also, even though I've read other of her books, my favourite book by her. I'm halfway through. It's amazing. And, I mean, it probably seems, it was quite an interesting thing of should we swap, stop doing The Joy Luck Club and instead do The Kitchen God's Wife? But The Joy Luck Club felt so important as a yeah. book. And it felt like such a big... Like, as a teenager, I read it and loved it. It was important to me as a teenager. It was important to you as a teenager. Mm-hmm. It's obviously also deeply culturally important as yeah. a sort of... Uh, one, you don't really want to say words like this, but like an, as an artefact of like the Asian-American experience and the Asian-American literary experience. Mm-hmm. But also, it was so important to me as a teenager. I loved this book as a teenager. I think Which that's has a... been, I think, a kind of recurring theme of... The way the books we've chosen for this Corona cast are books we loved as teenagers or books we would have loved as teenagers. Because maybe you only kind of. It's like that falling in love thing. It's like, oh, you make me feel like a teenager. Books that make you feel like a teenager who has not read that much grown up fiction is quite rare. Uh, yes, and I definitely felt exactly this way about the Joy Luck Club. I'm, I think I was probably about 13 or 14, which is that Same. kind of. That fun sort of corridor that you have between um, teen and young adult reading and like reading stuff that your mum is reading. 
And I think the, yeah. the Joy Luck Club is kind of it. Joy Luck tends to be that corridor for a lot of um, women because it is so about the mother daughter relationship. And when you're that age, the mother daughter relationship is everything to you, regardless of what cultural background you have. Yes, and regardless of what kind of relationship you have with your mother, because yeah. you're kind of whether you have a good relationship with your mother or a bad relationship with your mother, you're still kind of being like, "Am I going to be like my mother?" How can I avoid being like my mother? How can I be like my mother? Yes. Because, you know, this, that's, that's part of growing up, isn't it? Is being like, how do I get from child to adult? How do I model myself in a way that will be satisfactory to me? And your main role model is generally the parent of the same gender as you, I think. Like, yeah. generally yeah. speaking. Or you're kind of fighting against it as a conscious example. Like if you have a Completely. very bad parent. Yeah, but um, so when we talk about this book, and I know we're going to get into the plot summary and all this, but a kind of thing I want to say before we start, really, is that when I talk about this book, I am talking kind of about two books. Mm. I'm talking, I am talking, one thing I feel very confident about is I love this book. I loved it when I first read it as a teenager. I've read it a few times in the years since. I think it's great. I want to underline bits of it. I want to tell everyone, like, oh, it's so good. And when she says that thing about the marketing at dinner and when Rich is eating the crab and, like, oh, oh, my God, this bit and that bit. And when she makes the soup from her arm. Yeah, oh, my it, God. It definitely has that thing of, like, that shaking quality. someone by the shoulders, being like, that bit was Waverly at the dinner. And you're just like, ah. It's, like, definitely one of how, those books for me. How much time in this podcast do you reckon we can dedicate to saying the bit with Waverly at dinner? The bit with um, Waverly doing anything, to be honest. Like, Waverly. Waverly, Waverly, Waverly. I love her. <sighs> She's one of the best, like, that bitch characters in literature, I think. I know, but she's... She's, she's got a heart. That's the thing. Like, she's like... like I, 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 I struggle to think of another... Like she is, like she's a bitch. Like she's, she she's is just, a bitch. She's just a classic bitch. She's superior. She's mean to people. Like she makes people feel bad about themselves. But she is just like this wounded little girl who is trying to have the best for herself and her family. And I've never seen such a good three dimensional bitch in a book before. I think Waverly is the pinnacle of that. She's such a three dimensional bitch. I love her. She's probably she's my favorite. Yeah, I think um, her and Lindo, her mother, are possibly m the most intriguing dynamic of the book for me. And the most oh exciting. God. Totally. Totally, totally, totally. Um, and when, oh my God, and when she's like, you don't love, you hate Rich, you hate him, that I'm going to marry him. She's like, and, the, and Lindo's like, no. <laughs> Why would I hate him? <laughs> yes. Why would I hate your husband? And she's like, you hate him to be mean. And the mum's just, and Lindo's just like, No. That's not what this is. Yeah, it's that thing. I mean, anyway, no, yes. we have to get to this in order. I was going to say, and I want to make this stay at the start, I am sometimes, like, I want to know at the start, it's like, this is two white ladies talking about this incredibly important Asian American book. Two yeah. white European ladies talking about an Asian American book. Mm -hmm. Basically, what I want to say is that I'm coming to this book very much from the perspective of somebody who's loved this book for a long time, who... Ultimately, I'm coming to this as a big Amy Tan fan. I'm coming yeah. to this book as a person who loves Amy Tan, thinks she's a genius, finds her books incredibly compelling reading. And, you know, there will be... Th what I'm trying to say is, there, I feel like there will be things I miss. Yes, you know, that's, sort of that's exactly nuanced, what I want to say as well. Yeah, A nuanced exploration of this as, a, as the kind of seminal text that it is, rather than what I'm going to do, which is be like, 
and oh my god and the food and when they eat the food it's incredible and like the food is lucky and then when she says you are not those babies and I oh my god oh my god oh my god so basically I plan to spend the next hour saying oh my god a lot and I don't necessarily mm-hmm. have I don't necessarily have the cultural context that I would wish for in order for this to be a proper unpicking of this text and what it means kind of in the same way that with American Wife I didn't really have the cultural context to understand American politics in that way but I am dumb and I like sure. this book Don't just two dummies who like books that's all alright I'm going to launch into the plot summary The Joy Luck Club is Amy Tan's debut novel and centres on four Chinese American mother-daughter relationships we open the novel after Jing Mei or June's mother Su Yan has died and her friends have asked June to take her place at the monthly Mahjong game they reveal to June that her mother's twin daughters from a previous marriage have finally been found and attempt to convince her to go to China to meet them. Over the course of the novel, each mother shares the story of her life in China and her journey to the US, while their daughters share their experience of growing up Chinese-American. And within that sort of um, family dynamic, and, and it's often said that this book is shaped like a Mahjong game and that it has four sections and then sections within those sections. Um, we have the Wu family, the Su family, the Zhang family and the St. Clair family. Um, and the one thing I would say about this book actually is that I have I had a paperback copy when I was a kid um, it's still in my house in Ireland um, but I read this this time on Kindle and I would right up top not recommend reading this book on Kindle because it is oh my god you can't flick back you don't you know there's no writing back. at the top of the page to see who's talking and there's eight characters eight first person characters and that is always yeah. although I kind of find by the end Sort of by the last oh, yeah. quarter, by the last, by like the second half, I'm kind of like, oh, I recognise your voice, I recognise this, I recognise that. But for me, I had to just jot down the families on a bit of paper. Yeah. So that yeah. I, could... I kind of wish I had done that up top because I had forgotten like how, because these families as well, they've, they've all known each other such a long time and they're all playing in and out of each other's interpersonal drama. It can become a, me- a mesh and you do want to, you just really feel the urge the entire time is to, flick back and forward not just for continuity but also because the in in many of the mother-daughter relationships there's these really interesting echoes of one another's lives like when we're hearing about yeah. the mother's lives in china and the daughter's lives in america there's interesting echoes and parallels but there's also very interesting divergences and it just makes you want to just flick back and forth and be like okay how was linda's life compared to waverly's life and that kind of thing yeah and i think something about the structure of this book so is it 16 chapters? Yeah. Um, they feel, to me, like more like short stories. Long short I agree. Stories. Yeah. Um, something about the structure of that makes me want to compare and contrast. It makes me want to be like, but what about this? What were you doing then? Like, mm-hmm. what was your childhood like? And I... It's funny. I can remember all the children's names. It's like Jing Mei and Waverly and I... And some, I just there's so many names. Eight main characters is quite a lot, and I think that's one of the things that for me makes this feel more like a debut than her later work. Yes. There are fewer main characters. I always think of this thing Zadie Smith wrote in an essay about scaffolding, and mm. how she'll start off writing a novel, being like, "Well, this will, I will have the same number of chaps, chapters as uh, the books of the Old Testament, and each chapter will subtly mirror." Uh, the the themes of the books of the Old Testament, and then when she gets to the end, she's just like, "Why did I, why did I need the Bible? Why was the Bible in there?" Scaffolding to help you write it, yeah. and you get Zadie Smith says, "I'm paraphrasing because it's been a while since I read this essay, but it's in um, it's in her first 
first collection of essays, that you get better and better at removing the scaffolding. I, this book I, to me yeah. has scaffold. This book to me has visible scaffolding, which I kind of like. I'm kind of into it, but it does make me want to flick back through and be like, "Oh, that's what you're doing with the scaffolding." And I guess it's the scaffolding is the mahjong game. Precisely, and it, it does sort of feel like a, collect- a collection of short stories that have kind of hanged together by this concise, which isn't even really referred to back that much, the Mahjong game. Like, when you first start reading it, you think it's going to be one of these things where, like, it'll keep glancing back to June at the game, but really it's only at the beginning and at the end of the book that we even see that much of this yeah. of the of the game that the, the book is named after. But there's also this thing that I really love when debut novelists do this. Like, for me... Like, there's no such... Like, this is as close as you can possibly get to a perfect debut novel. And I can find flaws with this. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I would much... There's two kinds you can get. I would much rather somebody throw everything in the kitchen sink at something rather than someone try to create, like, a lean, like, 210-page novel where everyone says very sharp, clean things and everything's very, I mean, like, cut glass. Like, I prefer I a kitchen wanna, sink. Yeah, I kind of want to sort of make it clear that I did just roll my eyes. Um, <laughs> it's difficult to convey that on a podcast, but I would like to, with the tone of my voice, convey my deep eye-rolling at lean, sparse. I'm not very good with lean. I'm not very good with sparse. I'm not very good no. with affectless. I'm not very good with... I like books that get them all in. And this book... I like a book where I want to underline every other sentence. Mm. Like mm. That is a good sentence. I mean, I'm just like looking at my notes on this. And it's like... To despair was to wish back for something already lost or to prolong what was already unbearable. How much can you wish for a favourite warm coat that hangs in the closet of a house that burned down with your mother and father inside of it? Throw it all in, Amy Tan. I'm here for it. I want that. Like, And I, there's so many rich, big sentences like that. Mm. Rich, big paragraphs that are not... They're not really fashionable at the moment. We're getting a lot of debuts that are very, like... Lean and clean. Lean and clean. I looked at him. He looked at me. He was above me. <laughs> I was below him. <laughs> right? I'm saying. Yes. Like, it's very... Getting... Yeah, your, gra- your, your, your grandma's um, vase is very much the, the, the long, florid sentences with lots of feelings and lots of illusions and lots of colours and lots of things. It, you're right. It is kind of unfashionable at the moment, I think. Yeah, and I find it I I don't like it very much I am much I'm here for rich metaphor I am here for big complex images I find sparse things I know they work for some people I'm always going to be a person who just like give me more give me more give me a metaphor I just I I literally I'm just looking through the notes on my kindle the, the underlined parts and every so many things I want to underline that feel too much in terms of... Oh, God, no, the, the, the very first sentence, my father has asked me to be the fourth corner at the Joy Luck Club. I am to pl- replace my mother, who sees the mahjong table has been empty since she died two months ago. My father thinks she was killed by her own thoughts. Like, it's just like, oh, God, I love it, you know? Just, it's already, it's already so much there. The minute you like, get in, you're like, this is so... Sati- I find it very satisfying prose. Yes, yes, exactly. Is it, you, you're I'm, already getting so much. You're getting, like... And it's all there. It's like this responsibility that she feels towards her father, this sort of... Um, 
this tradition she has to carry on with her mother the fact that we're we know from the first sentence that we're going to get like at least three other characters and then and then it all ending on my father thinks she was killed by her own thoughts and we're just immediately like i couldn't think of an opening paragraph that has more to, to grab me than that you know i'm um, yeah i mean i find it's it's got it it's got it all <laughs> <laughs> which um yeah, I find it, as I say, incredibly satisfying writing and incredibly deep writing. I find it very well, it's well constructed to me. And actually, yeah. I think maybe that's the thing that we keep coming back to. One of the things I'm noticing is, is it recurring through these Corona casts is this sense of deep, satisfying writing. Satisfying writing that is not trying to hold itself back, that isn't trying to be something that it isn't. It's just... I am going to tell you a story and you are here for that story. There's a confidence to it. And I think maybe that's why this makes it quite a surprising debut in that there is a confidence to this book of just, I'm going to tell you these stories. Eight women are going to tell you their stories, intertwined, interconnected, and you are going to like it. Oh, yeah. And I like it. Oh, and, and I like is, it. What as well is like the confidence as well. I think it's because it is so confident that it doesn't feel debutish. Um, but... That she is also kind of like, and you talked about this early on, but there being like two books within this book. She mm. writes in sort of like two styles or two tones of voices. Like you have this kind of like modern 80s America, very quotidian, very like women who are like going to grad school and like have problems with their marriages and are thinking of getting divorced and are dating and all these things. Um, and they're like dealing with their mothers and they're like kind of rolling their eyes. And that's a very... um. I wouldn't say lean prose, but you know what I mean? It's very um, matter of fact. And then we also have this dual tone going on of how the mothers speak and think about themselves, how they speak and think about China and are, are written in a, in a kind of a different style, I would say. Like there's kind of more floridness. There's more talking about the sort of tradition and religion and luck and all these um, different mythologies that are going on. And like it should work against the book. Like, it should be, like, jarring. It should be strange to have that many voices. But, like, what it actually... It feels like you get this real sense of, like, not just the physical journey these mothers have been on, but the mental journey they have to be on and why they will always, no matter how hard they try, will exist on slightly different platforms to their to their daughters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was trying to think whether I agreed with you that they were written in different tones um but i think also it's to do with what they're remembering and i think that necessarily the stories of the mothers in china particularly when mm. they're children have a much more magic quality magic is yeah. much more a sort of quotidian part of what they're saying and doing mm. um let me see if i can think of an example but you know if you think about like the flesh soup or the yeah. ghosts or the mo or the what's the name the moon rabbit one with the moon rabbit yes the Sinclair um, Ying Ying's when she like that, that story where she sort of like falls into the river on this night of this moon festival and yeah it, it has a kind of a slightly magical realism bent to it and but, but yeah possibly because they're children and um, and that's how they think of things yeah and I 
Yeah, I'm trying to think whether I do think there's a difference in tone. I certainly think there's a difference in tone between those bits in italics. Yes, yeah. Which are sort of... Kind of I fables? Guess, fables, yeah, I was going for legends, but fables I think is better. Because they're meant to tell you something. But then I think... Um, such a good book. Every I keep getting distracted because every time I pick up the copy, I notice another sentence that I have underlined. <laughs> like, and I just get distracted by thinking, Amy Town's a genius. She's a genius. She's an absolute genius. She is. And I think to write a debut this, this rich is really difficult. It doesn't feel... Lots of times when I read a debut, I think, oh, with two years' patience and a really good editor... There's a really good book in here. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. feel like that about the Joy Luck Club. Yeah. I personally, for myself, I wish it wasn't in these sections. I like. I would like a through line. I would in like more sense. of a. I'd like more of a story through line. Um, I would like it to be. I think ideally, I would not have quite so many narrators, because yeah. I don't like jumping around. I might be tempted just to have just to be in Waverly's head and uh, Jing Mei's head. Yes, I, 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 yeah, I, I think that for me, the two most compelling families are the Wu's, which is Jingmei and Zuyan, and um, the and the Zhangs, which is Waverly and Lindo, and then the Saint Clairs and the Sus. Um, I find the Saint Clairs uh, so immensely depressing. Immensely depressing. Um, so, what happens with Saint Clairs is that. We have kind of Ying Ying, who's in, in China. She has kind of vaguely traumatising childhood, is sort of married to a horrible, like, womanising man who's who, who quickly leaves her. Um, and she kind of reveals towards the end of the book that she... Uh, and it's kind of alluded to, she gives herself a sort of an, a, a homemade abortion, really. And to, just kind of as a way of, like, seeking revenge out on this man who has harmed her. Then sort of marries Lena's white father, moves to um, America, has Lena, and and then all those chapters narrated by Lena are so terribly sad. And it's this thing of, like, Lena knows that she's from a sad house and no one knows why, you know? It's just they live in this flat in, like, Queens or something and she's just a bit, like, every sadness kind of permeates the entire household, you know? It's quite hard to read. Her father doesn't speak any Chinese or like he speaks like a little bit of Mandarin and he's always trying to interpret for Ying Ying. He's yeah. always saying um, to the daughter, oh, I think I think mom is tired when uh, y- uh, Ying Ying is saying to Lena, uh, I'm frustrated. Yeah. And there's all these nuances that he will never understand about their marriage and there's all these things he doesn't know about her and never will because she doesn't want to speak English and he doesn't want to speak Chinese and it's just devastating and then Lena marries this guy and they're very rich and their house I want to talk about the table oh god yeah I love that she marries Harold who who she like there she was like a secretary in his architecture firm and then they basically go out they start a business together but he's the boss it's very it's very she's like doing loads dynamics of yeah yeah she's doing loads of the work but he's getting paid more and he's like it doesn't matter you know the same money's coming in I can't and then later on she's like could I not be promoted and he's like you know it wouldn't be fair sweetheart if I promoted yeah. my wife and she's like but I started this business and he's like wouldn't be fair on the others if I promoted my wife and she's like but my business I also want 
and it doesn't work. Oh, and it's these terrible things where like he um he gets her like a cat for her birthday and then sort of like makes her pay for the flea treatment kind of thing and they kind of itemize everything in their life. Oh and- my god, the itemized list on the fridge of everything where Yeah. And then when Ying Yang's there like you pay for everything like this. It's like they can never buy each other a coffee without recording it on this sheet on the fridge. It's like, yeah. oh, I bought milk. I bought milk. It was $2 or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, you owe me a dollar. Yeah, yeah. I. It's so... And they've been married and they have this house and they are very clean about splitting absolutely everything down the middle, but they can never go out for dinner without splitting it. And it's just... They're just so sad. I find the Sinclairs just incredibly sad. I find Lena sad. I find Yingying sad. And there's this bit... So Yingying comes to stay with Lena and Harold in their house and in the guest room, which Yingying is like, it's not this room room. sucks. This room sucks. You put me in the second best bedroom. Everyone knows that the guest room should be the best room in the house because, and it's just this fundamental disconnect where Lena's like, you're in the guest room because you're the guest. And Yingying is like, this is. Yeah. The disrespect of putting your mother in the second best room in the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in the guest room is a table that Harold made. The table is useless. The table is garbage. The <laughs> table is a huge piece of marble on three very skinny legs. I can picture this table so clearly, Carol. So well. I can see it so vividly. It's just like, oh, it's architectural. Oh, it's got this pink marble on, like, th- in my head. Three, like, black, almost wire legs. Mm. Like, just thin struts. And it's got one exquisite vase on it of black with like, one flower. And you know, and Ying Ying knows, and I think Lena knows that the minute Ying Ying goes into that room, she's going to be like, a table is for putting stuff on. Yeah, yeah, a table is for putting stuff on. And obviously, Ying Ying puts her bag on the table and the table collapses and the vase smashes. Yeah. And I just find it incredibly devastating and I want to find the exact sentence. And what, and the, the interesting thing about this dynamic as well is that um, Ying Ying talks about like she's the only way Lena has ever known her mother as this like extremely retiring um, has had like a had a breakdown in her teens after she had a miscarriage um, and like had this very very shy small afraid timid woman but the way Ying Ying sees herself is very she refers herself repeatedly as being a tiger woman as being somebody who's she's ca- born who's in the year of tiger crouched and waiting and like will pounce at any time and she's like constantly she can't understand why her daughter can't see that in her you know yeah I just oh I'm just looking at it and it's so I kind of want to can I read a bit of this Is, if we go ahead yeah time. Lena thinks saint saved me from the poor country village I said I was from she is right She is wrong. My daughter does not know that Saint had to wait patiently for four years like a dog in front of a butcher shop. How is it that I finally came out and let him marry me? I was waiting for the sign that I knew would come. I had to wait until 1946. A letter came from Tianjin, not from my family, who I thought I was dead. It was from my youngest aunt. Even before I opened the letter, I knew. My husband was dead. I thought this man had long ago drained everything from my heart. But now something strong and bitter flowed and made me feel another emptiness in a place I didn't know was there. I cursed this man aloud so he could hear. So I decided. I decided to let Saint marry me. So easy for me. 
I spoke in a trembly voice. I became pale, ill and more thin. I let myself become a wounded animal. I let the hunter come to me and turn me into a tiger ghost. I willingly gave up my chi, the spirit that caused me so much pain. Now I was a tiger that neither pounced nor lay waiting between the trees. I became an unseen spirit. Can I tell my daughter that I loved her father? This was a man who rubbed my feet at night. He praised the food I cooked. He cried honestly when I bought out the trinkets that I'd saved for the right day, the gave he, day he gave me my daughter, a tiger girl. How could I not love this man? But it was the love of a ghost. Arms that encircled but did not touch. A bowl full of rice but without my appetite to eat it. No hunger. No fullness. Now saint is a ghost. He and I can now love equally. Oh. Oh, and I... I want to keep reading. I don't really it, want to talk. I just want to keep reading you the next three paragraphs of this uh, book. And it's weird because we went into talking about the St. Clairs thinking, oh, do we really need the St. Clairs? Actually, the Johns and the Woos are more interesting. But actually, yeah, they, like I do just love all of them. And you do feel their their losses so keenly, which you shouldn't when there's eight of them, you know? Okay, but listen, listen to this bit. So this is what I'll do. I will gather together my past and look. I will see a thing that has already happened. The pain that cut my spirit loose. I will hold that pain in my hand until it becomes hard and shiny, more clear, and then my fierceness can come back. My golden side, my black side. I will use this sharp pain to penetrate my daughter's tough skin and cut her tiger spirit loose. She will fight me because this is the nature of two tigers, but I will win and give her my spirit because this is the way a mother loves her daughter. I hear my daughter speaking to her husband downstairs. They say words that mean nothing. They sit in a room with no life in it. I know a thing before it happens. She will hear the vase and table crashing to the floor. She will come up the stairs and into my room. Her eyes will see nothing in the darkness where I am waiting between the trees. Like? Amy Tan, man. Um, So good. There's something very poetic about it. That I see a thing that... I will see a thing that has already happened... I know a thing before it happens. The repetition of that. It mm. almost feels... Like, when I read that, I feel like I'm reading a poem. Mm. And I hadn't thought of that until I read aloud. But it feels to me a lot like kind of the prose poems, which are not dated, weirdly. We were saying that this kind of rich textual writing in novels feels outdated and we've replaced it with this kind of sparse MFA-type creative writing. Mm-hmm. He was above, I was below. <laughs> Christmas. It's always just women having bad this, sex. This is always women having bad sex with men they don't like and who don't make them laugh. And like this book has lots of sex in it with men you don't like and don't make you laugh. <laughs> but still, there's a there's a richness and a joy to the human experience which I think is lacking from a lot of the novels. Yeah. The, particularly the debuts we see now. Yeah. Okay. Um dry coldness that honestly I just want to be I want to be in it I want someone who's going to give me a repetition of I will see a thing that has already happened I know a thing before it happens but I think you do see it in poetry and like not to drag everything back to poems poem girl loves poems <laughs> poem girl oh poems girl's here does she think it's like a poem uh, she does yes she does, she does. <laughs> uh, yes actually uh, there's something a little bit here, a Lindsay Birdish to me about this. There's something a little bit. It 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 sounds good in a way that I think is more yeah typical in poetry. Reading this aloud, I, I really enjoyed reading those two pages aloud just now because it just 
felt very satisfying to say. And there is something lovely to me about a story that can be told. That's it. That's what I'm getting at with all of these books. Is I feel like someone's telling me a story. Like Brother of the More Famous Jack. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's someone being like, oh, man. Well, okay, this happened. And then, like, and then Roger said this. And then I said that. You know? Yeah. And, the ch- and Changeover as well. I feel like someone's like, here's a story that you need to know. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I think as well, particularly with the Joy Luck Club, there, and I remember when I was rereading it and I was texting you being like, it is amazing to me that something that covers so many devastating both personal and historical events, like like the, like the Chinese-Japanese War, like the Second World War, like the whole horrors of poverty, like forced marriage. There's so much stuff in here. How something that deals with this much and has so many... And suicide, so many of these things. And it still feels like a comfort read. It never feels like very, very heavy reading. It never feels like something you have to push yourself through. Like, even the most depressing parts of these books are some of the most beautiful parts of these books. And I think because Amy Tan has such a love and a glee with language that, like... Yeah, there's, there's, there's sometimes there's entire pages of it that are just it feels a little bit like when you put on a Christmas album not because you want to listen to the lyrics but because you want to feel Christmassy it's just like it's like an atmospheric bubble that she casts over the entire experience you know I think the atmospheric bubble thing is right but and not but really uh, also I this is kind of feels like a tangent but I hope we'll get back around to the point I want to make um I recently sent a friend who's having kind of a hard time all five of the Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Mm-hmm. And this friend is having a tough time for like a really specific reason and I realised like, oh, there might be parts of this book that were triggering. Mm-hmm. And I said to my friend, I was just like, well, these... These, there are things that I think might be triggering for you in these books. But what I will say is there's also a lot of things that are triggering for me in these books. But it makes me feel instead of like, oh, shit, don't want to read about this, don't want to think about it. Like, oh, oh, my God, you know, mm. you get it. We're all here together. Like, we've all had bad time. We've all had things happen that are difficult. We've all had sometimes quite... I'm amazed by the number of people who have had compellingly horrible things happen to them. Mm. Like... Things everyone. Like, oh, everyone. You're like, oh, that's your novel. That's your misery memoir. Mm. I know very few people who couldn't, if they wanted to, be like, and here's my big tragedy. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird thing, you know, weird thing when the tragedy's happening to you, you think this is the most unique thing that's ever happened to a person. But actually it turns out that's just your flavour of tragedy for this bit <laughs> of time. Yeah. And something about Joy Luck Club makes me feel that same way of like, oh, all eight of these women have got their own... They've got their own yeah. tragedies, even when they're interlinked. Yes. But like, and it, 
Yes, and it's also that thing of like, even though the the stuff that the mothers are go- have gone through, like say escaping war, and the stuff that the daughters are going through, is, you know, going through a divorce, going through work struggles, going through feeling awkward about being with their mom alone. There's and this is this is something that you come back to in your writing a lot, and I always like it, which is that there's no hierarchy of pain. Yeah, I feel very strongly about this. I. I have always felt very strongly about this, actually. Like, when bad things have happened to me, I have found it very important to try and keep in perspective that everybody is feeling deep pain and it's not necessarily proportionate and it's not necessarily... Like, minds don't work in terms of, ah, big pain, big sad. Yeah, I I can't think of a single moment in my life where I was deeply upset about something, where being reminded that somebody else had it worse helped like that's fairly obvious but like you know i think a lot about when you were writing promising young women Mm -hmm. your first novel everyone surely everyone knows that who's listening to this (laughs) podcast but maybe not caroline's first novel another unsparse debut where everything was thrown in and not all of it worked (laughs) hey it's for and magic and some magical realism uh, (laughs) in many ways are you amy tan for iron (laughs) am i amy tan (laughs) are you irish amy tan uh, no. <laughs> Thank you. I've been um, waiting to hear for some time whether or not I was there at any time. Hey. And it's always good to hear these things from a friend. <laughs> Jury's out. Jury's out. I don't, I'm not qualified. You really need the Irish people to vote. I'm sure they will soon. <laughs> In our yearly Who's the Next Amy Tan But for Ireland contest that we host over the phone. Sorry, what was the point you wanted to make? <laughs> Promising Young Women. When you were writing Promising Young Women, I remember your editor, Sarah, saying to you, nobody's ever a bit anything. Nobody's ever a little anything. In that you had, I think, in your first draft, lots of sentences like, I felt a little embarrassed. I felt a little upset. A little and slightly. I felt slightly angry. And I remember your editor saying, no one feels slightly anything. They feel the full thing, but quickly. (laughs) It's so true. I think it's one of some of the smartest writing advice I ever have ever had. I think so about shout it out constantly. Sarah Sabat. Sarah Sabat, a genius. Um, I think about it constantly. This idea of when you feel angry, you feel like a flash of anger, but it's the same depth of anger. You know what yeah. I mean? You're not like, oh, I'm a bit. You know, I mean, it's possible to feel nuance around. It's not, I'm not saying that people don't feel nuance. I personally never feel any nuance at all. I have two speeds, zero and a hundred. Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure that some people can feel nuance in some ways. But you feel each of those emotions. If yeah. you're feeling something in response to something, you know, like if you stub your toe, you're just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But it's very brief, right? Totally. But, you're, but in those moments, you moments want to you're die. Like, you're just like, how can this pain be? Like stepping yeah. on a plug. Or even like if like something more emotional where it's like, oh, somebody didn't invite me to a thing. You feel that flash of childish, jealous anger and then you're able to temper it a few minutes later being like, well, you can't be expected to be invited to everything. You can't you know? do everything and you don't know her that well. And also like, maybe it's, and it's quite, it seems like quite a small party. And would you even have wanted to go when you don't know anyone going? But it doesn't mean that you felt slightly jealous. It means you felt fully jealous for two minutes. Yeah, or even less, like even a very short yeah. amount of time. But then Rose, I think, had quite a serious... Let, hang on. Oh, I know how to do this. Okay, go ahead. Uh, 
Yeah, so, you know, the pain people feel for a moment is very real and the pain that people feel about things that are quite insignificant. And I say this as someone who's had, like, notably bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Famously bad things have happened in my life. And I don't say it to belittle anyone else with big bad things. But I do think that it's important when you're going through something big and bad to not use that as an excuse to not care about other people. Mm. Like, it's perfectly possible to be sad about your divorce and to understand that you getting a divorce is not the same horror as your mother abandoning her twin children by the side of the road as she flees an army. Mm. Yeah. But, and, and you can't temper your own sadness you can't temper your own sadness because somebody else has at some point been sadder. And also, it's not to say that the mothers in this book have the only bad time. I am thinking particularly of uh, Rose, of what are the, the Sue fam the Sue family. Yeah. I'm thinking particularly of Rose, who has lived her whole life under the shadow of having let her baby, baby brother drown, which wasn't mm. really her fault. And mm. her mother, Anne May, who... Her childhood is horrible. Truly horrible. Hideous, both like physically and psychologically. I mean, Anne May is the one whose uh, own mother cuts off part of her own arm to make a soup for her grandmother to drink to try and save her grandmother. And it's not a nice scene. It's not... There's no getting It's not around. magic. It's not magic. There's a knife. Yeah. There's an arm. Oh. There's, car there's carving. And this, this, I think this is like, this is always where my reading of the book and my watching of the film, uh, which came out in the 90s, and it still, still totally holds up. It's really good. Um, it's always where I conflate them the most because I remember it so vividly of like this whole thing of like Anne May growing up alone with her um, aunts and then her mother and then telling her that your mother is like not a real person she's a ghost she has no face she can't even lift her head up and then the mother arrives when um, Anne May is about nine when the grandmother is dying cuts off part of her arm to feed her mother into a soup to feed her mother from a soup and then takes Anne May like up to this different city where she's living as the fourth wife which is kind of a polite term for concubine to this very rich man who she's only living with because he raped her um which was and a plan made by his second wife so they could have she could have a child and give it to him and now she has to watch her own baby son being raised by the woman who organized her rape and it's devastating it's so bad i don't even know what to say about it it's her whole life's been so awful i just i'm trying to find the Yeah, I mean, I don't... I The thing about Anne May's story is that you don't want to do it all at once because her mother's, you know... Growing up in this house where your mother is a ghost is awful and terrifying. I'm just looking at it. Um, my mother was estranged to me when she first arrived at my uncle's house. I was nine years old and I had not seen her for many years, but I knew she was my mother because I could feel her pain. Do not look at that woman, warned my aunt. She has thrown her face into the eastward flowing stream. Her ancestral spirit is lost forever. The person you see is just decayed flesh, evil, rotted to the bone. And I would stare at my mother. She did not look evil. I wanted to touch her face, the one that looked like mine. Oh, 
it's really interesting that reading that paragraph, especially in light of um, there's a very interesting essay I've read from Lillian Lee, who refers to it as the the love hate joy luck club, where she talks about reading this book as a teenager, loving it because she hadn't seen that kind of representation of. Um, the Asian American experience before and then becoming an undergraduate and being like I'm so sick of this I'm so sick of these easterly winds and all this talking about ghosts and all this like exotic annoying like cliched language around um, around Chinese women and then she talks about coming back around to it again as an older woman being like this book is is wonderful so it, it makes me think because this book is so so important and it like it basically created a marketing genre for books right I, like, I remember the 90s being so dominated by like immigration narratives that were very focused on the Asian female experience like I'm thinking like Wild Swans um like A Hundred Thousand Sorrows like there was a, quite a few books of that genre and I think and even things like Chinese Cinderella which I mean yes I know yes. we both loved it sort of nine or ten yeah definitely i was obsessed very with that particular and... narrative yeah i was obsessed with the early chapters of wild swans which i took off my parents bookcase and chinese cinderella yeah and i was like this is this is the most compelling this is oh like i was me. obsessed i read it up backwards and forwards up and down but i think i, I i'm not surprised that so many asian female authors especially ones who are in america um, feel this kind of frustration where like everything they do is kind of compared to as being post Joy Luck Club or like somehow moving away from it or existing in the shadow of it like that frustration must be very real well I mean I think it's interesting that when Crazy Rich Asians became such a phenomenon everybody yeah. was talking about it in relation to the Joy Luck Club and of course you can see why but also very interesting that these two like, I loved Crazy Rich Asians I oh yeah such adored an, such, it such a brilliant book and it's such not, a great film, you know? Such a great film. But it's not at all like Joy Luck Club. No. It's not texturally like Joy Luck Club. It's not, the films are not the same. They're two incredibly different books that would never, ever have been compared if it wasn't just like, yeah. well, Asians. Yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of, um, that kind of ghettoization must feel really narrowing. And like my own, the only experience yeah. I have of that would be the only thing I can relate to with that is that like I have found in the last couple of years being in a young Irish woman author that like we're suddenly being spoken about in terms of it being like a craze or it being like a thing you know like because there's been so many brilliant like very successful young Irish women authors particularly Sally Rooney who've come out in the last few years there's now it's a strange thing of like before nobody was nobody seemed to care about Irish women, and I never felt any different to my to you or to any other English author that I would work with. But then suddenly, when when there becomes a little bit of representation, people narrow all of their ideas about a place or a thing or an art or a movement to that one thing, and suddenly all of the work around it or happening simultaneously gets cast in that shadow, and the frustration of that can be real sometimes. Yeah, I obviously being an English writer in England don't have don't run up against these kind of things so much, but I certainly see it certainly see it with you and the ways that people talk about your work. 
And I also think there's another interesting parallel to Irishness. When you're talking about how, was it Lillian Lee, came, mm -hmm. hated this, loved this book, then hated it, then came back to it. I see yeah. a real parallel with the way that you have talked about Ireland and Irishness in over the course of our friendship. I mean, we probably yeah. met, what, eight years ago, at which point you were very much, to quote from your new book, very much on the Ireland is a real country, it's all cities, we have chemo and Topshop now. <laughs> chemo, Cicerone and Topshop. Chemo, Cicerone and Topshop. We have all the things. And, which is true. And you were very against, I mean, please jump in and correct my memory, as you were very like, ugh, no, I don't want to, no, I don't want to eat a potato. No, I don't care about magic. Leave me alone. <laughs> I am, it is, Irishness is irrelevant, irrelevant to who I am. And then in the yeah. last few years, it seemed to me a lot more like you've kind of, I've been like, well, fuck it. You know, I just want to eat some mashed potato and go to Galway a bit and go to Kerry a bit. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And I'm absolutely red. Yeah, I, I think that's very normal. I think that's very, it's like, because I think country, it's interesting because this book is so much about a country and parent and a parentage, that how those things are the same thing. Like when you're young, you want to run so far away from anything that you think might threaten to shape you because you've become so repulsed by it, because you're so sick of it, because it's been pressed on you so much that you just want to remove yourself from it and be yourself on your own terms. But then the older you get and the more you realize that there's only so much that you can actually shape your interior life. It's done. You're baked. <laughs> like, and like, you, uh, 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 unfortunately, you're just always going to be an Irish lady who loves potatoes and magic. <laughs> and like, so, and similarly, I think all the women in this book go through a, um, a similar journey with their Chinese heritage where many of them can't even speak Chinese. But they're like, this is who I am. Oh my God, that bit with Waverly where she's like, crab's not Chinese food. And hang on, I'm going to find it. The bit where they're all eating crab and the whole, so it's the, the family's there together and Waverly says, crab isn't Chinese. Auntie Lindo looked at her daughter with exasperation. How do you know what is Chinese, what is not Chinese? And that very much, like, how do yeah. you know what is Chinese and what is not Chinese? It's like, you are not this. And I think in some ways, and I don't want to derail sentimental garbage by making it, you know, Caroline O'Donoghue's books appreciation now, but it's really <laughs> oh, interesting Thank to you me. very much. <laughs> but I think it's interesting to me in your new book, which is, coming out in it's coming out in ebook in, on june 18th and hardback in august because of coronavirus please pre-order it now where you wherever you get your books um but it's all about really this sense of immigrate like what it is to immigrate what it is to not be from a place that your parents are from what it is to be from somewhere you're not from do you know what i mean so in your book yeah. charlie the lead character is father is Irish, her mother is English, she herself is from Essex, and she has spent her life being like, I'm actually Irish, having never yeah. been to Ireland. And I see quite a lot of parallels between scenes and this, just in terms of... Are you saying I am the Irish Amy Tan? Well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> She's the Irish Amy Tan, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Um, but I see quite a lot of parallels in terms of just that thing of 
I need to identify with this country. I have a lot of things to think about, about what it is to be from this country and particularly what it is to be in this country in, in, an, in a, I don't quite know how to phrase this, but I think the experience of being Irish in England, in England particularly, somewhere that's kind of the colonial power and there's, there's a, there's a real power dynamic there. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> there's a real power dynamic between like China and America. And, you know, you think about how in this book, the when they're kids, they're often living in like Chinatown. And there's this bit, there's a bit where one of the girls, I can't remember which, gets her picture taken in front of the... Yeah, I think it's shop. Waverly. I think yeah. it's Waverly who gets her picture taken in like by a, by a big white guy in front of the shop. And he just wants a picture of like cute Chinese kids in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And they're being kind of exoticized in this way. And... So I actually wanted to read from there's this great chapter towards the end of the book where um, two of the mothers, they, they're reflecting on how they met, which was in like a fortune cookie um, factory in Chinatown. And they're sort of looking at the fortunes within these cookies and realizing how kind of nonsense they are and how they're kind of projections of projections of how people see Chinese proverbs or Chinese wisdoms. Do you ever think, did you ever think you would be so powerful you could determine someone else's fortune, she asked. I didn't understand what she meant. So she picked up one of the strips of paper and read it aloud, first in English. Do not fight and air your dirty laundry in public. To the victor go the soils. Then she translated in Chinese. You shouldn't fight and do your laundry at the same time. If you win, your clothes will get dirty. I still did not know what she meant. So she picked up another one and read in English. Money is the root of all evil. Look around and dig deep. And then in Chinese. Money is a bad influence. You become restless and rob graves. What is this nonsense? I asked her, putting the strips of paper in my pocket, thinking I should study these classical American sayings. They are fortunes, she explained. American people think Chinese people write these sayings. But we never say such things, I said. These things don't make sense. These are not fortunes. They're bad instructions. No, miss, she said, laughing. It's our bad fortune to be here making these and somebody else's bad fortune to pay to get them. I think it's really fascinating, the idea that they meet during these translations and they both don't know what they mean. Um, you know, they're both like, what is this? What are we making? It's like, oh, we're making a Chinese thing. I see. It's like, we didn't write this. This is not Chinese. And it's like, that's what the Americans wanted Chinese to be. And so that's what we... It's, yeah, totally. And I, and it's... I kind of want to talk about this um, a little bit. I was having a really fascinating conversation with your friend of mine, Kate Young, last seen mm-hmm. on this podcast talking about the chamomile lawn, mm-hmm. who, to give a little bit of context, writes these books She's written The Little Library Cookbook and The Little Library Year. Um, she's got a new one coming out quite soon, I think, that are all about books and food and food and books. Mm-hmm. And I thought she would be a really useful person to talk to about food in, in this book because I wanted to kind of... I wanted to get somebody's take on the cooking in this book because it's such an important part, right? Like, food runs yeah. through this book. Who we eat who we eat how we eat how we well eat. actually yes who we eat in one of the scenes who so. we eat, how we eat who we eat who we eat it with you know there's a bit with a moon cake there's a rabbit and she like i think it's ying ying who eats the belly for herself which has got the filling and she gives her little half sisters the ears which have none it's just kind of devastating in that way um and i wanted to get somebody's take on Food, on the food in this book who was kind of an expert in food and books 
food and books generally and also who is an exceptional cook herself you should buy her book her books plural they're great um but what she talked about was a lot was the chinese food and chinese american food being two quite different cuisines okay and how you know when they go to china at the end of the book when june goes to china and has proper chinese food for the first time despite the fact she's been eating chinese food her whole life in san francisco but the food's quite different and then she has to have burgers because that's what's available on room service yeah 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 and it's like all these layers of chineseness and americanness and chinese americanness and yes and it's how so they all be- kind of fold into one another to make a complete person and how you have this kind of culinary heritage that goes with you and you make it with what you have right like you go to america and you can't get the right kind of you you can't the ingredients do not exist in the same form i think about this a lot this is another tangent but it's quite a good one so bear with me i may be remembering this anecdote slightly wrong so someone can write in and complain does anyone ever write in and complain never not once fantastic love a podcast much better than an article people i can't remember the bad things you've said um so making southern making like proper southern american biscuits not south america like southern united states you can't do it you can't make biscuits apparently of the same quality or of the same texture outside of the deep south of america because the flour doesn't exist flour in the deep south is treated differently wheat is grown differently has different properties outside of those few states and i find it very interesting when people are like oh you can use swap in plain flour or whatever and it's interesting for me in the pandemic i've been getting my flour from an italian deli who will deliver and the flour is different it is fundamentally different it is brilliant for making italian bread i find it quite tricky to work with making something like buns and it's like, oh, flour mm. is different. This ingredient that seems the same, and you would think would be the same, is in fact different everywhere. My parents are in lockdown in France, and the flour they get is quite different. And my mum is trying to work out what flour to use yeah. where for all her normal recipes. And I say this story, which may or may not be true about the biscuits. I know myself, I've never had a really good biscuit. But as you know, uh, my friend Rob Perry makes quite good American biscuits. But biscuits are hard. And that's because the ingredients are different even when they look the same. And I think there's something in this about this Chinese food of San Francisco. This food they're making that is kind of like the food of their youth. But even then, the food they're eating in the middle of this famine is different to the food they ate as children. Yeah, and I find the many many layers of food in this novel to be really compelling. I find the way that food is used to eat, and I mean, they're cookies, right? They're fortune cookies, so they're still things to eat. They're Mm -hmm. still in this wheelhouse of like, and doesn't she propose with the cookie? Yes, she does. She proposes Um, by giving him this food, this food that you have to break and things you have to find. And it's, it's a it's a something kind of badly translated being like, oh, you will find your spouse today or something. And he's like, I don't know what the word spouse means. And then he goes and looks it up in his dictionary. And he comes back and he says, will you be my spouse? 
And it's like it's one of the very few very like tender romantic moments that you get in this book which like despite the fact there are so many relationships with men there aren't really any men in it. No, I mean there's Rich who's Waverly's fiance. Yeah. I just want to take a moment for Rich who is described as being basically short looking about 12 and very freckly and Waverly this beautiful bitch beautiful genius bitch it's just like I love him I can't he plays with my kid he he takes my kid to the zoo my kid thinks he's great I he buys me a fur coat he buys me a fur coat it's not a great fur coat but it's a fur coat like I feel like we haven't like considering we both love Waverly more than ourselves um, I think we haven't spoken enough about her dynamic and in particular I think Waverly was the thing I loved the most about the book when I was young because like the, the, the kind of narrative that she has is like first you have kind of Lindo who um, is put into forced marriage when she's like 14 years old and um, is kind of abused by her uh, in-laws and then she realizes that like oh my god I'm gonna have this absolutely shit life where I'm basically a slave to these people forever unless I think of something and kind of crafts a way for her to like get her way out of this marriage by like oh like the ancestors visited me and said that they want like his like so and so's true wife to be the servant girl who also happens to be pregnant she kind of maneuvers this very craftily they give her some money she gets out of the country she emigrates she has Waverly and then they're both they're both just like very crafty bitches and then we have Waverly she's so she's like this genius like she's nine years old and she's on the cover of Time magazine because she's a chess prodigy and it's and she's so so brilliant and you and like as when you're especially when you're reading as a young person you're like oh this is so cool she's like beating all these grown men in chess and she's only a kid in pigtails oh my god when she and, starts playing in the park when she starts playing in the oh my park, god and she's got lifesavers instead of that she hasn't got a complete set and whoever wins gets to use the lifesavers yeah oh, oh so good and like as an adult it's much easier to be like hey you know Jing Mei, she's she's trying her best. She's doing her job well, and she's doing. She's a copywriter. She's doing her job. Yeah, but and she's been framed. But like when you read it at thirteen, or for me, you're just like, oh, Waverly, love you, name, and like, she's got such a cool name. And there's this kind of thing with them. Um the sort of rivalry between Jin Mei and Waverly because they are neighbours and their mothers work in this fortune cookie factory together so they kind of grow up alongside each other they're basically cousins and this thing of like Waverly's this chess prodigy everybody wants to be Waverly and like the Jin Mei and her now deceased mother are like involved in this this like mutual project of Jin Mei becoming a prodigy herself and like oh if Waverly can be a prodigy you can be a prodigy it was kind of no sense of like that's not really how it works and Jin Mei is just like she's just a lazy eight-year-old who just wants to watch tv and not practice her piano and there's this like beginning of this like huge animosity between them of her being like oh my mom just wants somebody to brag about she wants me to be a different person than who I am and setting up this whole dynamic of like she's never going to accept me for who I am. And then her mum just being like, I don't want you to be different. I just want you to try. I just want you to try harder. And you're like, and that is like the fundamental mother-daughter thing, no. isn't it? <laughs> no. I just want you to try harder. I mean, the mothers in this book want their daughters to try. They want their daughters to be more. Yeah. 
And they want their mother, their daughter to sort of know that they deserve more. And there's this constant talking about like, we want to raise these daughters who have like American opportunities, but they keep the Chinese way. And the sort of like continued impossibility of this is just, is basically what the book is about. That like, you can't, even, even though you can, your daughters can be fully aware of like how much they owe you and how much you did for them. That does not mean that you have jurisdiction over governing their personalities or their choices. Yeah, I just keep I keep coming back while we're talking about, particularly about Waverly, the conversation that Waverly and Lindo have about whether Lindo hates Rich, Waverly's oh, yeah. boyfriend, and I because wanna... she never comments on like she's basically waving it in her mother's face that she's living with this guy even though she's divorced um, and she's like leaving purposely leaving his stuff around her flat so Linda will say something and Linda just won't comment on it and she's convinced that Lindo hates Rich when actually Lindo just kind of doesn't care yeah I wanted to re- can I read that bit yeah yeah go ahead where's Ma I asked trying to keep my breath even he gestured to the living room in back I found her sleeping soundly on the sofa. The back of her head was resting on a white embroidered doily. Her mouth was slack and all the lines in her face were gone. With her smooth face she looked like a young girl, frail, guileless and innocent. Her chest was still, all her strength was gone. She looked powerless, defeated. And then I was seized with a fear that she'd looked like this because she was dead. She had died when I was having terrible thoughts about her. Ma, I said sharply. Ma, I whined, starting to cry. And her eyes opened slowly. She blinked, her hands moved with life. Maymea, is that you? I was speechless. She had not called me Maymea, my childhood name, in many years. She sat up and the lines in her face returned, only now they seemed less harsh, soft creases of worry. Why are you here? Something's happened? I didn't know what to do or say. In a matter of seconds, it seemed, I had gone from being angered by her strength to being amazed by her innocence and then frightened by her vulnerability, and now I felt numb, strangely weak as if someone had unplugged me and the current running through me had stopped. Nothing's happened. Nothing's the matter. I don't know why I'm here, I said in a hoarse voice. I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to tell you. Rich and I are getting married. I squeezed my eyes shut, waiting to hear her protests, her laments, the dry voice delivering some sort of painful verdict. I already know this, she said, as if to ask why I was telling her again. You know? Of course. Even if you didn't tell me, she said simply. This was worse than I had imagined. I know you hate him, I said in a quavering voice. I know you think he's not good enough, but I... Why do you think I hate your future husband? <laughs> you never want to talk to him. The other day when I started to tell him, you about him and Shoshana at the Exploratorium, you, you changed the subject. You started talking about Dad's exploratory surgery and then, what more important, explore fun or explore sickness? <laughs> I wasn't going to let her escape this time. And then when you met him, you said he had spots on his face. She looked at me, puzzled. Is this not true? <laughs> you said it just to be mean, to hurt me. Why do you think these bad things about me? Her face looked old and full of sorrow. You think your mother is this bad? You think I have a secret meaning? But it's you who has this meaning. Ah, yeah, she thinks I am this bad. She sat straight and proud on the sofa, her mouth clamped tight, her hands clasped together, her eyes sparkling with angry tears. Oh, her strength, her weakness, both pulling me apart. My mind was flying one way, my heart another. I sat down on the sofa next to her, the two of us stricken by the other. I felt as if I had lost a battle, but one I didn't know I had been fighting. Oh. Mothers! I want to call my mother! Mothers! It's so, do you know what? It's so, what's so great and what makes this book a mass market paperback that every single woman I know has read, regardless of their cultural background, 
is that the fact that most of the mothers and daughters don't share a mother tongue makes the breakdowns in communication, it's like this um, operatic versions of what everyone experiences with their own mother, which is like constantly inferring on inferring and inferring of like what we think they mean, what they think we mean. And it's like, you actually don't need to <laughs> have that language divide to have a language divide. Yeah, to have this thing of like, but this is what I'm trying to say to you. And that feeling of her mother being like, but why did you mean this? It's like, I didn't mean that. I just meant the different thing, but I couldn't say the thing because I thought that you thought, I mean, I don't know, maybe this isn't everyone's relationship with their mother, but in some ways it has been, it isn't at the moment. My mum's great. But like, certainly there have been times in my life where my relationship with my mother was very much, why do you think the thing, why do I think that you think the things? Why can't we think the same things? So much, and for me, I'm actually exactly the same. Like, me and my mother have a great relationship. We're constantly talking about our mothers and how much we like them. Um, so we do, yeah. But the times in my... Hi, moms. <laughs> the times in my life when things have been the most difficult or fraught are the times when I I want to pull away and she feels me pulling away. And that is so much the journey of these women in this book because they are Chinese-American women and their mothers are Chinese. It's kind of like... The, the, the pull it feels so constant therefore it's so heightened do you think that's why it so deeply resonated with well both of us at sort of 13 14 but also i imagine there must be millions of teenage girls or now women who read this at 13 14 were like oh my god you understand what it's like to have a mother because yes. when you're 13 14 that's the kind of main time in your life where you're like i must forge my own path and also i guess those are the years where sometimes you see your parents your parents kind of become people to you because yeah. what's so devastating about that scene with Waverly and Lindo is that like she's just like oh you're you're so strong but so weak how can this be when you are my mother <laughs> and like I don't know part of the one of the great joys for me is that basically every year I get further away from being a child I get to know my mother better as a person yeah, as a person so accurate. with complex feelings and emotions and a history of her own and I think you don't know that as a child as a child you yeah. think my mother is eternal and she does all the things right I remember once asking my mum to draw me something I couldn't draw it myself I think it was like a tiny some kind of illustration for a family tree which is all I did as a child was just make really elaborate Victorian family trees mm-hmm. for made up families very on brand very on brand like draw family portraits and I remember saying to my mum, can you do, and I was naming a really specific like bit of clothing, and she was like, I don't think, I, it might have been like button boots or something. It was more specific than that. And she was like, and I was like, this isn't very accurate, mum. And I'd be like, and we were on a beach, and I'd be like, I've drawn you the best Victorian girl I can. I've drawn it, and me being like, but it doesn't look like a, a photograph. And I'd be like, again, we were on a beach, you have handed me a biro and a bit of your notebook. Oh my and just realising for the first time like, oh that my god had, uh, that she doesn't have like she's not like a deep that was probably the first time that I remember realising like oh there's stuff she doesn't know <laughs> oh my god she doesn't yeah. know and she doesn't have the skill to like do a beautiful artistic rendering <laughs> of this Victorian child I've imagined because she um, is just she is a human being 
the, gonna... the nature of the mother-daughter relationship is also that she's going to listen to this episode and send you a text being like, how dare you broadcast my lack of drawing abilities to strangers? You betray me. I want to clarify that my mum is really good at drawing. And that was why I was surprised. <gasps> sure she, she, does really, she does really nice paintings now of trees and sometimes a boat. <laughs> Um, I have to say these the, things in case uh, she gets Of course, mad at me. of course. She's not going to get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. The one scene I really want to talk about before we ring off, because we've been talking for a really long time, mm-hmm. is. Um, and I think the song is. This is the song of my true heart because I spent so long working in marketing and advertising, where uh, June is at family dinner, and it's the crab dinner. It's the famous crab dinner at the end of the book. And um, she is like a. A freelance copywriter, a copywriter who does freelance stuff on the side, and she has done some work for Waverly that she hasn't been paid for. And Waverly is being such a bitch at dinner, and and June is like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like show Waverly. I'm gonna like show her up in front of the whole extended family by reminding her that she hasn't paid me for that work. And then what follows is Waverly completely unruffled, like just totally dismantles all of like June's ability she's like are you serious like I can't accept that this is awkward I wasn't gonna say it here but your work sucked everyone in my agency thinks so and I've been looking for a tactful way to tell you but I guess that way is now and it's so devastating it's so devastating I'm just looking at it Um, it actually comes straight after how do you know what is Chinese what's not Chinese so Waverly's kind of been a little bit schooled and also she's brought this white guy to dinner and, and he's like, made a bit of an ass of himself a bit yeah but like and also he and Waverly are just like ugh don't eat the brain that's disgusting and everyone else is like it's very delicious and they're like ugh no and they're giving each other looks so, and then Waverly Waverly actually says some sort of brief bit of homophobia because June is like Jingmei is like oh I get my hair cut um Yes! Oh I get my, my haircut on Howard Street and Waverly's just like, you're gonna get AIDS. <laughs> yeah. That was the the one part in the book where I was like, this book was written in 1989. Like, because like, the way to show someone being a bitch is like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna get AIDS off your gay hairdresser. And it's like, what? It was like a real smack in the face. I was like, wow, this is yeah. a... And I kind of want to bring it up because we've said that like we both think Waverly's very cool, but this is just... And like, when you're in her head, you're like, oh, I get it. I get you, Waverly. But then... I mean, he is gay, Waverly said. He could have AIDS and he's cutting your hair, which is like cutting a living tissue. Maybe I'm being paranoid, being a mother, but you just can't be too safe these days. And I sat there feeling as if my hair were coated with disease. And like, like, I think it's important, though, that you get this thing of like, why Jingmei is so cross? Why Jingmei is just like, well, fuck you. I am going to bring up the fact that you haven't paid me on time. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you have you've said my hairdresser's got AIDS, which he hasn't, and now I feel weird about it, and everyone at the table feels weird about it. And, and it's draws. like, it's it's, basically, it's also the, the living nightmare of every freelancer ever. Like, I honestly think, whenever I send an invoice, I'm half expecting the person to come back and be like, no, you weren't very good. Like, I'm half expecting the person to do a Waverly at the family dinner and just tell me why I won't be being paid. She's responsible for a lot that Waverly. But also, Waverly does try and cut it off at the pass. Yes. Do you want to read from it? At that crab dinner, I was so mad about what she said about my hair that I wanted to embarrass her. 
to reveal in front of reveal in front of everybody how petty she was. So I decided to confront her about the freelance work I'd done for her firm. Eight page of brochure copy about her t about its tax services. The firm was now more than thirty days late in paying my invoice. Already, I'm in. I'm sold on the specifics. And also Jingmei, very ambitious to think that after 30 days you should be getting paid. I mean... 45 at the very least. I just love that, like, this is a specific. This is alive to me. This is, as we are constantly saying about things, totally. lived in. Lived in. And, like, the fact that this scene exists in the same sort of book where, like, the sort of ghosts and easterly winds and, like, ancient Chinese traditions can also exist. But I think it, it makes, them, I think it makes both more successful. It's like... The ghosts and the easterly winds and so on exist alongside this world of like Waverly's about to be a bitch to June about her copy, about some corporate copywriting <laughs> that the invoice is, is late on. <laughs> Maybe I could afford Mr. Rory's prices if someone's firm paid me on time. I said with a teasing grin. I was pleased to see Waverly's reaction. She was genuinely flustered, speechless. I couldn't resist rubbing it in. I think it's pretty ironic that a big accounting firm can't even pay its own bills on time. I mean, really, Waverly, what kind of place are you working for? Her face was dark and quiet. Hey, hey, you girls, no more fighting, said my father, as if Waverly and I were still children arguing over tricycles and crayon colours. Which I kind of love as well, because, like, you're being children. You, Jingmei, yeah. are being a child. You're cross that she said something a bit horrible about your hairdresser, so now you're going to be like, hmm, you didn't pay me. Anyway. <laughs> That's right, we don't want to talk about this now, said Waverly quietly. So how do you think the giants are going to do, said Vincent, trying to be funny. Nobody laughed. I wasn't about to let her slip away this time. Well, every time I call you on the phone, you can't talk about it then either, I said. Waverly looked at Rich, who shrugged his shoulders. Which, I keep interrupting myself because, like, that's so brutal. It's like, we've talked about this. Do you want to do it? Shall I? Uh, so bad. It's like the them against me thing. Yeah. It's like arguing with a couple. Don't do it. Never argue with a couple. They're going to have each other's back no matter what they, what you do. She turned back to me and sighed. Listen, June, I don't know how to tell you this. That stuff you wrote, the firm decided it was unacceptable. You're lying. You said it was great. Waverly sighed again. I know I did. I just didn't want to hurt your feelings. I was trying to see if we could fix it somehow, but it won't work. And just like that, I was starting to flail, tossed without warning into deep water, drowning desperate. Most copy needs fine-tuning, I said. It's normal not to be perfect the first time. I should have explained the process better. June, I really don't think... Rewrites are free. I'm just as concerned about making it perfect as you are. Waverly acted as if she didn't even hear me. I'm trying to convince them to pay you for at least some of your time. I know you put a lot of work into it. I owe you at least that for even suggesting you do it. No, oh, you bitch, Waverly! Just tell me what you want changed. I'll call you next week so we can go over it line by line. June, I can't, Waverly said with cool finality. It's just not sophisticated. I'm sure what you write for your other clients is wonderful, but we're a big firm. We need somebody who understands that. Our style, she said this, touching her hand to her chest as if she were referring to her style. And then she laughed in a light-hearted way. I mean, really, June. And then she started speaking in a deep television announcer voice. Three benefits, three needs, three reasons to buy. Satisfaction guaranteed for today's and tomorrow's tax needs. She said this in such a funny way that everybody thought it was a good joke and laughed. <laughs> and then, to make matters worse, I heard my mother saying to Waverly, True, cannot teach style. Do not sophisticate like you. Must be born this way. First it's of the all, most, it's the most her devastating. Copy is bad. It's the most <laughs> devastating scene 
about financial copywriting I can think of. It is so emotionally devastating because, like, Junior, copy is not sophisticated enough. It's so... Oh, and it's also this very like subtle way because like Waverly's always positioning herself as being kind of like very elegant and very sleek and it's like I have managed to transcend the unsophistication of growing up in Chinatown whereas you have not feels like the underlining thing you know I'm sure what you write for your other clients is wonderful our style like us us when of course she means me like and then but what's wonderful about this scene because like it's such a brutal thing. And then directly afterwards, they have this bit with the crabs, right? And this bit about, like, um, this whole extended bit where, like, she, Jin Mei goes with her mother to the fish market and they buy crabs and they kind of are suckered into buying this f- basically shit, almost dead crab <laughs> um, that, like, could be like, borderline poisonous for anyone to eat. And um, through various different things, and like the the mom is like, oh, no one will end up eating it anyway. And like then it ends up being like Shoshana, who's Waverly's daughter. It's like they didn't think that Shoshana would be getting a crab because crab is too sophisticated a dish for a child. But then Waverly kicks off because of course Shoshana no, no, should get Waverly a crab. just takes it. Waverly just takes She's the t- best crab for Shoshana, and then she takes the second best crab for Rich, and then she takes the third best crab for herself. Yeah, and then Lindo takes the fourth best crab, and then by the time it gets around to um. Jing Mei, there's only like a fairly small crab and the shit basically dead crab. And she takes the shit basically dead crab because she wasn't gonna eat anyway and all this and this becomes like the way her mother kind of soothes her later, being like, Yeah, you're not you're not elegant, you're not like this genius, you're not this style icon, you're not Waverly, but like and this is a line that actually isn't in the in the book, but it is in the film. And it says you, you, you take worst quality crab because you have best quality heart. And it's a bit that in the movie makes me like explode with just tears because it's like this rare moment that you get in this book of like people looking at each other, not just with clarity and understanding, but like with complete affection that is completely unguarded. Yeah. I mean, in the book, what it is, is my mother looked at me and smiled. Only you pick that crab. Nobody else take it. I already know this. Everybody else want best quality. You thinking different. She said it in a way as if this were proof. Proof of something good. She always said things that didn't make any sense. That sounded both good and bad at the same time. I was putting away the last of the chip plates. And then I remembered something else. Ma, why don't you ever use the new dishes I bought you? If you didn't like them, you should have told me. I could have changed the pattern. Of course I like, she said, irritated. Sometime I think something's so good I want to save it. Then I forget I save it. And then, as if she had just now remembered, she unhooked the clasp of her gold necklace and took it off, wadding the chain and the jade pendant in her palm. She grabbed my hand and put the necklace in my palm, then shut my fingers round it. No, Ma, I protested. I can't take it. Nana, Nana, take it, take it, she said as if she was scolding me. Then she continued in Chinese. For a long time I wanted to give you this necklace. See, I wore this on my skin so that when you put it on your skin, then you know my meaning. This is your life's important. I looked at the necklace, the pendant with the light green jade. I wanted to give it back. I didn't want to accept it. And yet, I also felt it as if I'd already swallowed it. I put the necklace on. It felt cool. Not so good, this jade, she said matter-of-factly, touching the pendant. And then she added in Chinese, This is young jade. It's a very light colour now, but if you wear it every day, it will become more green. I love it so much. And like I actually... I'd written down the 
the kind of conclusion of the Jade's necklace story. After Suyan dies quite quickly after that incident, I think this is their that's kind of their last family dinner together, and um, she talks about her jade pendant and she says, "I think about this all the time. I always notice other people wearing these same jade pendants, not the flat rectangular medallions or the round white ones with holes in the middle, but ones like mine, a two-inch oblong of bright apple green." It's as though we were all sworn to the same sacred covenant, so secret we didn't even know what we belonged to. Last weekend, for example, I saw a bartender wearing one. As I fingered mine, I asked him, Where'd you get yours? My mother gave it to me, he said. I asked him why, which is a nosy question that only Chinese person can ask another, that only one Chinese person can ask another. In a crowd of Caucasians, two Chinese people are already like a family. She gave it to me after I got divorced. I guess my mother's telling me that I'm worth something. And I knew by the wonder in his voice that he had no idea what the pendant really meant. Just, just. I need whole... to get off. I need to get off the Zoom call so I can call my mother. <laughs> Let's all call her mom. I feel like that's what we should do. Is everyone just, <laughs> just now call your mom? Find out what it means. Like, but you never oh. can. You never can. No. I, I, I just want to conclude the podcast sort of by saying that, like. This sort of 30th anniversary edition that I have in my Kindle and that I really recommend people buying in paperback um, has a beautiful intro from Amy Tan where she talks about how when she was on holidays in the 80s and uh, she got an answering phone message that her mother was in the hospital and she thought that her mother had possibly died and she had one of the last things that her mother had said to her before that was I think you know little percent of me and and her sort of realizing after the threat of losing her mother how true that actually was and how her writing the joy luck club and it, and i assume because so many of her subsequent books have dealt with the same dynamics is just a, a her constantly trying to know her mother more which i think is such a an amazing kind of raison d'etre for an author oh my god you're crying <laughs> it's a very good book and it makes me want to call my mum <laughs> let's call our moms yeah um yeah I don't really have anything to add except that I find this book very moving and very compelling to read and uh, I do feel this preoccupation with mothers but I don't know in lots of ways I also feel like I'm kind of yeah I, I think we all kind of Writing about mothers. We all come from one. Everyone's got one. <laughs> we all come from one! Everyone's oh. got one. Let's leave it at that. This has call been a mom. lovely hour. This has been gorgeous. Please call your mum. I will call my mum! This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. 
Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.